0: When I began this series in Philippians, we had just finished as a church going through Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a book that shows that you can rejoice in God even when you lose everything you love. And so when we went to Philippians, I wanted to continue talking about joy. And joy definitely is a major theme within the book of Philippians. But I want to stress this morning that God's vision is bigger than individual Christians having joy. God has called people from all around the world, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to be part of his family, his called people, the church. And so I want to stress to you this morning that Paul did not write Philippians so that you as an individual and I as an individual would know how to have joy. Paul wrote Philippians so that the whole church would together fight for the gospel with joy. It's not about just you and me. It's about the people of God together sharing in his goodness as his entire family. That's why Paul begins the letter addressing the whole church, praising God for their faith and their faithful support of his ministry. That gospel partnership runs through this letter. And what I mean by gospel partnership is the reality that the Philippian church heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. They heard that gospel message from Paul. So that's Paul's contribution to the church. And then the church partnered with Paul, sharing with him both financially and relationally, supporting his ministry. That's the relationship side from the Philippian church to Paul. And that gospel relationship runs all the way through this letter that's full of so much joy. Paul wrote to inspire the church, letting them know that God's plans are always accomplished. So though they had heard he was in prison, they would know that the gospel was still moving forward. That partnership hadn't come to an end. He urges them to fight for the faith towards the end of chapter 1, the verse that we read today, verse 27, knowing that they share his struggles. And as he begins to write about having the mind of Christ He does so because he knows that selfish people kill the church's ability to fight for the gospel. So what we've seen is he describes the mind of Christ, and he's given Timothy as an example, and now Epaphroditus as an example. All of this is going back to that command where he urges them to strive together for the faith, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. He writes showing that he practices what he preaches, By sending them Timothy, because he wants to minister to the church so that they continue to fight for the gospel. And I said last week that Timothy serves as an example of the mind of Christ, and he does. I don't want to lose sight of that. I think Paul makes that perfectly clear, that his intention is to hold him up as an example to say, this is possible, to have this kind of humility. Even though we are sinners, we can have the mind of Christ And begin to be more and more like him in this life now. And I'm giving you Timothy first as an example. And I'm giving you Epaphroditus as an example. But don't miss this. He's not just using them to illustrate a point. He's also sending them to continue the gospel partnership. So this is not about demonstrating that you and I can have the mind of Christ as individual Christians. Although that's true. Jesus didn't die just so that I would be saved, he died so that a people would be created, so that we would be part of an entire family, all of us, fellowshipping with God the Father, through Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And so I want to stress this morning, as I continue this message through the book of Philippians, that now that we're about to see Epaphroditus, this is not just another example, this is a continued gospel partnership. And the thrust of this letter is that the church, together, joyfully, needs to fight for the gospel. For the spread of the gospel, and for the fellowship of the gospel within the church. Both of the examples that he's given us, Timothy and Epaphroditus, show us what the mind of Jesus Christ looks like. They show us, in a very practical way, how a gospel partnership works. And they serve as an illustration of Paul's earlier urging to fight Together for the gospel. So this is not just an illustration of the mind of Christ. This is an illustration of practically what it looks like to fight for the gospel as a united church. So these men fight. They fight together and they do it all to spread the good news that Jesus Christ is the king who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And right now is reigning at the right hand of God the father. So I would urge you let's read the text together. And bear that context in mind. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 25 through 30. You can find it in the blue Bibles throughout our sanctuary. It's on page 981. And in the large print Bibles, it's on page 1165. And I'm going to start in verse 25 of chapter 2. Let's read Philippians together. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Last week we saw Timothy as an example of selfless service, someone who had the sacrificial mind of Christ. This week we see Epaphroditus as another example, this time of dedication to the work of Christ to the point of death. Epaphroditus was a man willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in service to Christ. And my prayer for the church is that we will honor and imitate people like this i pray that we will serve with radical love family love that we will be diligent in work and that we will serve with the strength and sacrifice of a soldier let's begin by looking at the reason for epaphroditus return to the church and i'm going to reread verses 25 through 28 this is the first point in my outline today verse 25 to 28 the reason for epaphroditus return to the church. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." The first thing to notice is that Paul and Epaphroditus are both anxious for the good of the church. Later in this letter, Paul is going to say, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. So he doesn't want people to live in anxiety, and yet this passage is full of anxiety. But the key difference is this they are not concerned for themselves, and this is especially funny because Epaphroditus is the one who's sick and almost dies. Normally, when you're sick, you worry about yourself because you're sick. But Epaphroditus is worried that the church will worry about him because he's sick. You would think that they were the ones in danger of dying, but that's not the case. He's just worried that they'll be distressed at the news that he's ill because he knows how much they care for him. Paul and Epaphroditus are both anxious For the church. That they wouldn't be overly concerned about these two servants. That's a servant's heart. So the first reason for Epaphroditus' return is to alleviate that anxiety. God saved him from death. Had mercy on him and on Paul. And so Paul wants to reassure the church that Epaphroditus is going to be around for a little longer. So he's sending him back so that they won't be worried anymore. Both of them genuinely love the church So it isn't difficult for them to put its needs above their own. And you can see the kind of man Epaphroditus is in Paul's description of him. And I want to take a couple of moments and go through the qualities that he just incidentally lists that are part of who this man was and part of who he was as a servant and part of who I believe we should become. So let's look again first in verse 25. Paul calls him a brother. And sometimes we use that kind of language in the church casually. But Paul really means it. For him, there's an affection that goes beyond blood. And last week, I mentioned the division that was in existence outside the church between Jews and Gentiles in the first century world. Jews felt like Gentiles were dirty. Gentiles felt like Jews were foolish. But within the church, that division was healed through Jesus Christ. And I mention this now because Paul, a Jew, calls Epaphroditus, a Gentile, a brother. They're not physically related, and yet the bonds of the church break not only literal bloodlines of father and mother, brother and sister, but they break cultural barriers, they break ethnic bloodlines as well. And Paul refers to this man as a brother. And I believe that while we use that kind of language casually, we have room to grow in treating one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, people who have all shared in the sacrifice of Jesus, experiencing the forgiveness of sins. I think it's easy for us to, by default, treat our physical families with priority and to forget that we are part of the family of God and we are called to love one another sacrificially within the church beyond the bounds of our family. So first of all, Paul calls him a brother. Secondly, he calls him a co-laborer. He understood that ministry required work. It required diligent work. And Epaphroditus was willing to work. And I'll say something more about the practical nature of that ministry in just a moment. But considering the work ethic of the Apostle Paul, who one wonders, if you read the book of Acts, if he ever actually slept, this is high praise coming from Paul, that he considers Epaphroditus a co-laborer. Thirdly, he considers him a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. And I think it's healthy for us to recognize it's easy to just look at that word soldier and say, oh, that's a metaphor. He doesn't mean that very literally. And forget that we actually are in spiritual warfare. Calvin pointed out in his commentary on Philippians that the work of the ministry, the gospel partnership that they have, will never be unopposed. And as we step out and attempt to reach our community for the gospel, and as our missionaries faithfully serve around the world and attempt to minister in ways that spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan will oppose us. And so this is not just... An analogy, in a very important sense, this is literally true. That's why in Ephesians, Paul writes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We have to remember that spiritual war is going on that affects all of our ministries and our homes, and we cannot be casual about it. That's why it's so critical that we pray for each other. And it's critical that we recognize that behind our petty little conflicts and disagreements and divisions, we have an enemy who wants to destroy the work of the church and stop the gospel from being proclaimed. One of the best pieces of marriage advice that I ever got was that fighting about how to load the dishwasher is never about loading the dishwasher. And while that's good marriage advice, it's also good advice for the church. Because not only do you have to worry about person-to-person conflicts and recognize that the silly little things that you fight over are indicators that there are bigger problems that you need to address, we need to take an additional step back and recognize that there is a spiritual battle waging and the petty little conflicts we have ultimately could divide us and bring the ministry of the gospel to a halt. And a church that does not proclaim the gospel isn't worth being a church. We must, we must recognize that we are in spiritual warfare and pray for each other diligently. Paul describes Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. Epaphroditus is a man that understood heaven and hell and the glory of God hang in the balance here. And he went to war. Before I move on, I want to ask you, do you think of your fellow Christians here in our church as fellow soldiers? Are you fighting along with them? Are you serving in the trenches? Satan would love for you to forget that heaven and hell and the glory of God hang in the balance. He would love for you to think that this is just business as usual. But the reality is, this is war. And I want to remind you that it's real. And I want to encourage you, be in prayer for the ministries of our churches and the churches surrounding us. Be in prayer for our missionaries and pray that we would be useful to the God who will win. The next thing that Paul describes Epaphroditus as is in the end of verse 25. He describes him as a messenger and a minister to Paul's need. So Epaphroditus is sent by the church and he finds Paul and they gave to him financially and he brought him news of the church. The Philippian church gave to Paul financially so that he could be dedicated to preach the gospel. Paul was a tent-making missionary, literally, that's how he supported himself. And yet the Philippian church understood that the more time he spent making tents, the less time he would spend in the service of the gospel. And so they wanted to free him from that necessity. Paul never asked for money, but he did accept it. And so especially now, as his freedom is so limited, being imprisoned, This kind of giving is even more necessary for him to meet his basic needs. But Epaphroditus didn't just carry a sack of money. He also carried news of the church. And I think this type of ministry is critical to recognize that this is part of the ongoing relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. That when Epaphroditus comes, he doesn't just drop the money and run. He tells him what's happening in the church. He tells him the struggles that they're having. He tells them the doctrinal questions that they have. And he's seeking instruction from Paul as a spiritual leader. Epaphroditus is not a guy who's serving on the front lines. Epaphroditus is in a role of support. And I think it's critical to recognize that Paul refers to him as a brother, a co-laborer, and a co-soldier. And those roles of support are every bit as critical as someone like Paul who is on the front lines. Sometimes in the church we fall back into a kind of thinking that there are Christians who are way up here that are super spiritual like Billy Graham. He's leading crusades. And then there are just all the people who are kind of down here and they're not as important. That's not the biblical picture of what the body of Christ is like. The biblical picture of the body of Christ is that all of us have a role to play. All of us are essential. And so as Epaphroditus ministers to Paul's need and maintains that relationship. This is part of the gospel progress. It doesn't depend on a single person on the front lines. It's the job of the whole church, the entire body of Christ, united under the head, Jesus Christ, not led by a couple of people who seem to be doing all the glory work in the front lines, but led by a group of people who are cooperating together together, To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, as we consider Timothy and Epaphroditus and their examples, we should consider their level of dedication. Because Epaphroditus is dedicated to service to the point of death. And this should remind you of the obedience of Christ that Paul talked about earlier in this chapter. Where Paul in verse 8 describes Jesus being obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying this man is following Jesus Christ's example and his level of dedication is to the point of death. He is an example of what genuine, sacrificial, Christ-like service is like. And it's a clear demonstration that this type of life is possible for you and it's possible for me. So Paul instructs the church in how to receive a servant of the Lord. And you can see that in verse 29. Someone who has these characteristics, who's serving in this kind of capacity. Verse 29, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Paul writes only two commandments in this paragraph. And he tells people, receive people like Epaphroditus with joy. That's the first command. And the second is, hold him in high regard. Or honor him. And really he says. Honor people who are like him. So I want to take just a second. And meditate on what each of those looks like. The first receive him with joy. We are to celebrate people like this. Throw a party. If you guys remember Habakkuk. I talked a lot about joy in the very last message. Talked about joy throughout the scriptures. That it manifests itself in singing. That it manifests itself in In good, rich food. When you see someone who is dedicated to the service of Christ, you should celebrate that person. And you honor them by desiring to spend time with them. You don't check your calendar first. You clear your calendar so that you can serve them because they are people who have given everything for the cause of Jesus Christ. And the second thing he says is hold such people in high regard. People like this should be our heroes. Everyone has heroes, and you can tell a lot about a person based on who they admire. So if you're a sports guy, whether it's baseball or basketball, you probably have a sports hero. If you're a car guy, you might have a race hero. If you're a guy, one of my heroes it's Alexander the Great. I feel like his leadership in persuading men to march elephants all the way around the Mediterranean Sea, which sounds like a terrible idea, the fact that he managed to get people to do that demonstrates a kind of leadership that I almost can't believe is historical. All of us have heroes like this. Some of us have fictitious heroes. Maybe you're a John Wayne kind of guy. The point is, if you were to make a mental list of people you admire... Of people who are your heroes? Now, right now, in the context of church, I expect everyone will be thinking missionaries and pastors. But outside the context of church, if you're just hanging out with a buddy, if you're casually getting someone to know you, who are the people that you talk about? Who are the people that you admire? When you're not in a context where you have to be spiritual and think, oh, this is a pastor that's ministered to me. Oh, this is is a missionary that I was really inspired by. Who do you spend your time reading about, listening to, watching on TV? Who are your heroes? Paul says our heroes should be people like Epaphroditus. People like him are worth celebrating and honoring. Many of the accomplishments that the people we admire accomplish, like Alexander the Great, the Greek empire is gone. It has no, if you read about Greece in the news today, they are not leading the world in anything except debt. If you look at the accomplishments of some of the other heroes that we've talked about, athletes have their records eventually broken. No one really likes NASCAR anymore. Just because of what they've done to the sport, I should clarify. The point is, many times, our priorities are completely out of whack. And you can tell based on who and what we honor. And Paul says, honor people like Epaphroditus. The last point I have today is actually the reason for honoring Epaphroditus. So for those of you who have notes and you're looking in the bulletin, you'll know that's actually different. I originally entitled the last point, The Reason for Epaphroditus Service to Paul. Uh, Because it does actually, verse 30, describes the nature of his service. But I think the point that Paul actually has is he's giving the real reason to celebrate and honor people like Epaphroditus. So look with me at verse 30 and see the reason for honoring Epaphroditus. Paul says, for giving the reason, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says Epaphroditus is worthy of this kind of honor because he nearly died for the work of Christ. And I want to point out again just exactly what that work for him was. Paul says he risked his life to complete what was lacking in the Philippian church's service to Paul, which is a really funny way of saying he carried a bag of money and some news across the world until he got to Rome and found Paul and delivered the money and delivered the news. Why does Paul refer to it as, He completed what was lacking in your service to me. Seems like a strange way to describe that. Well, I believe what Paul is getting at is the church actually owed Paul their support because in a very real sense, they owed their eternal souls to Paul. Let me explain why. Paul brought them the news of the gospel. They were dead in their sins on their way to hell, and Paul brought them the hope that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. So one of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts, the Philippian jailer says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Literally. They owe him their lives. When they believed, his message saved their souls. And as someone who saved their lives, they owe him. And I believe that's what Paul means when he says that Epaphroditus was completing what was lacking in your service to me. Paul doesn't ever demand money, but he does acknowledge that they owe him. He says something very similar in his small letter to Philemon. He says, you owe me your very life. So he expects Philemon to do what he's asking. In other words, the work that Epaphroditus did for Jesus was he was part of the church supporting the missionary that brought them the life-saving truth of the gospel. That's why they continued this partnership with Paul. They owed him a debt as someone who brought them life-saving news. And I think it's a good thing to recognize because it demonstrates the value of people like Epaphroditus who are playing a support role in the ministry of the church. You might feel like you can't serve the Lord because you're not a Billy Graham. But the reality is, people like Epaphroditus, people that do support type ministries, are essential to the running and operation of the church and are essential to the health of missions. Epaphroditus is a model for us of dedicated service to Christ that simply supports the frontline work of someone like Paul. And as I close today, I said at the beginning of this message, my prayer is that we would honor and imitate people like Epaphroditus. And I think that's part of why Paul talks about him in this letter. A small part. He's giving a second example of someone who has the mind of Christ, who serves the church by putting the needs and interests of others above their own. And as I close, I want to remind you of someone who is actually very much like Epaphroditus, but he's actually still alive. I think sometimes it's easy to get so focused on the text that we forget that God is still active in doing things like this today. So I want to remind you of someone that you probably already know about from just two years ago. I'm sure everyone here will remember the outbreak of the Ebola virus in West Africa in 2013. It was an infection that is nearly always fatal, and there was global panic as it seemed to spread across Africa without any cure and in the middle of that panic, medical missionaries from Samaritan's Purse flew in to, in an attempt to stop the spread of infection and to find a cure. And so Kent Brantley not only went to serve dying people, but he actually contracted the disease and nearly died himself. And it's easy to condone his bravery in retrospect. No one here is scared of Ebola anymore. And I think now that the panic and scare is over, we all recognize that he did what was right. But there were many people who called him foolish. I remember when he was being flown here for treatment, a lot of people were afraid of the risk of bringing him home, even though that was the best shot that he had at life. And I heard people say things like, he knew the risk when he went. And it's true, he did know the risk when he went. But part of his testimony is how he handled that risk. So I read a little article in Christianity Today about him, and I was reminded that Time Magazine actually made the Ebola fighters, all of them, the person of the year. And they interviewed Kent as part of that story. They asked him, what was it like after you knew that you contracted the virus, knowing the odds for survival were somewhere around 10%, actually below 10%. And Christianity Today reported That Brantley, talking to Time Magazine, said God blessed him with a special sense of his presence while he battled the disease. This is a direct quote. He said, I remained strangely calm, never shedding a tear. I wasn't being brave. I was filled with peace. And when I told my parents about my impending fate, I told them that whether I live or die, I just want God to be glorified. That's straight out of Philippians. That's a man who has a servant's heart, who is loving people in a practical way so that he can tell them about Jesus Christ. Brantley is a reminder that God still uses people like Epaphroditus, people who risk their lives to the point of death. And I pray that his example inspires you, that it inspires you to honor people. And I want to give you a couple of ways that we can do that. So number one, Be hospitable to people who serve the Lord. God willing, we're actually going to have that opportunity as a church sometime this year. The Chapmans are actually back from Congo. And I just received an email from him this morning, actually between services, saying that he will make our church a priority and we hope to have him here. So when you see him, I believe that biblically it is appropriate and right and good to honor him as someone who serves the Lord in a ministry that many of us couldn't serve him in. So I want to urge you, be hospitable to people who serve the Lord when you see them in person. When you can't see them in person, maintain contact with our missionaries. Check out the board in the back. Read the letter that we got from Ann Clemmer this past week. Pray for them. One of the ways that you can honor them is by constantly thinking about them and praying for them that their spiritual warfare would be successful that they would be free from temptation, that their ministries wouldn't face any obstacles or oppositions. Pray for them. Pray that they will have victory over Satan in every way, both personally and in their mission work. Give to them. Give to them generously. Not just amounts that are convenient. Give so that you need to sacrifice something in your life. And I promise you, in eternity, you will not regret it. Let me urge you, to imitate them. And let me urge you to imitate them first by reading and listening to good biographies of missionaries. I've got about half a dozen that I'll be posting on Facebook in the coming weeks. So all you have to do is click a link and you can listen to a biography of someone who has served Christ in an incredible and profound way. Start by listening and let that example inspire you and let me urge you to grow in obedience to Christ. I want to remind you of what Jesus said. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. When you look at people like Kent Brantley, who could have set up a practice here in the States and become wealthy and lived the American dream, he dedicated himself to medical missionaries. In context of the American dream, he's somebody that's probably going to come in last. And yet, in the next life, I believe he will be first. He will be in a position of honor. Let that priority rule your life. That you would think more about the next life than about this life. So honor people like Kent Brantley and Epaphroditus by imitating them. As I close, I want to ask, are you choosing to invest in the work of Christ? Or do you selfishly invest in your own life without considering the cause of the gospel? If that's you, I'd like to encourage you to make a commitment today to change. Look at the needs of the church and the need for ministry around you. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of people in Holly and in our area who do not know Christ, who are on their way to hell. The need for ministry in our community is staggering. That means there's an incredible amount of kingdom work that can be done here. And let's commit as a church to doing it together. So if you're not serving in a capacity here at the church, let's figure out a way that you can get, get involved, I would urge you, make sure that you are serving the gospel of Jesus Christ together with the church. And lastly, let me, let me say this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this whole message would seem kind of crazy and stupid. Why would you spend your life and waste it in service to this gospel? But let me say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. And if you don't know Him, you are separated from God and don't have a relationship with Him. All of this service is done because believers recognize that King Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. So if you've never trusted Him, I want to urge you to repent of your sins, place your faith in His death and resurrection for forgiveness. And let me urge you to be baptized and to publicly confess your faith in Him. And if you need to do that, If you feel that God is talking to you and convicting you, I ask you to talk to me so that we can help you with that. And all of us together as the church can fight for the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. We ask that you would bless us as a church with incredible unity. That we would faithfully and diligently and lovingly fight the battle to spread the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.